I uh, want to tell you a story about a golfer, not just because Matthew and I played golf pretty badly back in the summer. It's a lovely evening, ruined only by our golf, but we had a good time. Um, there's a story about Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholas is one of the greatest golfers that's ever played the game. He won something like um, 180 tournaments, uh, 18 major tournaments. But every single uh, year, he would take a journey. Every single year at the start of a season, he would go to Florida. Not because he wanted some sun, not because he wanted some orange juice. He wanted to see some body. He wanted to see his coach. So wherever he was, he would journey before the first tournament of the year, he would journey to Florida. And in Florida, he would ask a question, the same question every single year he asked his coach. He asked him this question. Can you tell me how to hold a golf club? Here's a man that's won 180 tournaments, 18 majors, and every single year, he was humble enough to say, can you teach me how to play golf again? Can you teach me the most necessary, the most simple thing in the game of golf? Can you show me how to hold a golf club again? He wanted to go back to foundations. He wanted to begin again. He wasn't a proud man. He was a humble man, which is why he's such a great champion and still a great ambassador for the game of golf. You can tell I'm a fan. I like him. You know, when it comes to Christianity, it's really easy to uh, not go back to first principles, to ignore your foundations, to think you know something. You can become overly familiar with somebody or something. You can forget first principles. You can ignore the foundations. This morning, because it's a special day, I want us to go back to the beginning again. I want us to go back to foundations. I want to learn a lesson from children. We can see that from Mark 10, verses 13 to 16. And I want us to avoid a danger. I want us to remember why Jesus came. What did Jesus come to do? Why did he have to come and do it? And what do we need to learn from children? You might say, oh, I know this stuff. Well, come on, let's learn a lesson from Jack. Let's go back to the beginning and let's learn about the gospel once again. Let's just run through the passage really quickly. Look at verse 15 of chapter 10 from Mark's gospel. In summary, it says, if you're going to know me, if you want to know what it is to be a Christian, this 2,000-year-old religion, you need to go back to the beginning. And, and the Lord Jesus says this, if you're going to know me, you have to be spiritually like a child. He doesn't say you should be childish. He said you should be like a child. You must become, verse 15 of Mark 10, you must become as a little child if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. It's pretty difficult to understand what that means. And not too long after Jesus says those words, there's a power grab. The disciples don't understand what he means at all. And so if you've got a Bible, you can see it. Or on your service sheet, verse 35 through to verse 45 of Mark chapter 10, there's a power grab. James and John, two of Jesus' inner circle, they come to Jesus and say, we want to be to your left and to your right. When you sort out your cabinet, when you're in power, just like Theresa May, when you're in power, when you sort out who's going to be next to you, we want to be the guys on your left and to your right. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking about. Verse 36 and verse 37 tell us that. You don't know what you are saying, verse 38. Are you able to drink this drink? Are you going to be able to be baptized the way I'm going to be baptized? Jesus is talking about his death. Jesus says you need to learn from little children. The disciples say, yes, we've got it, Jesus. But they haven't got it at all. 
And then looking down to verses uh, 45, Jesus says, this is the bumper sticker that you need to remember. This is the way you hold your golf club. This is what Christianity is all about. This is why I came. Jesus says of himself, he's using a title of himself, the Son of Man. I've not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life for people. I've come, verse 45, to give my life as a ransom for many people. I want to look at this one sentence. What did Jesus come to do? Why did he come to do it? And what do we need to learn from children? Number one, what did Jesus come to do? Verse 45 tells us, it says, the son of man, Jesus, Jesus came to give his life. Jesus did not come just to die. He did not come just to be killed. Verse 45 tells us he came to give his life. Now bear with me. Compare this to the other major world religions. If you want to organize and be a leader in a world stage of a major religion, you need to not die in this way. What do I mean? Let's think about a few. Think about Confucius. Confucius, he died in his 70s. Uh, He was surrounded by his disciples in a place of serenity. He was honored in his hometown. He didn't die a bloody death. He was secure. He had his family around him. It was a a good way to die. Buddha. Buddha, he died at the age of 80. Again, he was very peaceful and serene. He was surrounded by his disciples. Muhammad. Muhammad died full of years as the ruler of a united Arabia. These men who have uh, the pillars, the, uh, the leaders of these major world religions, they have something in common. They all defeated their enemies. They were all surrounded by their disciples. They all knew peace in their time. They had been resisted. They'd faced persecution. They'd faced suffering. And they've overcome them all. That's the leaders of the uh, world religions. They were old and full of years. It sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings describing Gandalf. He was old and long-haired and well in years. He'd had a long life and he went to be with his fathers. It sounds something like that. They were all successful. They all overcame. But then there's another bunch of uh, religious leaders who seek to gain a following, who perhaps dictate a holy book, who say they've seen God, and you don't hear about them because they faced opposition and then they gave up. They faced persecution and they died at the hands of their oppressors. And Jesus says, I'm more like them. Now what sort of king, what sort of Messiah would be like that? What sort of Messiah would come to the world and die a bloody death, would face persecution and suffering the like that any other religious leader has never known? What sort of real king would die at the hand of his enemies, would be destroyed in this way? Jesus is saying, I'm not like the big religions of the world. I'm like the people that you forget. I'm like the people who, when they face suffering, turn back, who die a bloody and a gory death. Someone who's deserted by his followers, not surrounded by them. I'm not going to die a serene death. Verse 45 says, this is why I've come. I've come to die. I've come to give my life away. And there's something happens in the life of the disciples. They take up this cross, this, this bloody edifice of torture by the, at the hands of the Romans. They, they pick it up and it becomes a badge of honour. The disciples who are told to be like little children and then who don't get it and say, I want to be at the right and your left in your cabinet, 
They clearly don't get it, but something happens after Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection that they pick up this bloody sign and it changes and transforms their life from the inside out. They knew that Jesus died on the cross. They were there, they saw it. But then along with 500 other people, they also saw that Jesus died and rose again. And something changed in their life that the cross went from being a gory symbol to a source of joy. It went from being death to to being a power in their lives. It changed and transformed them so that this little band of brothers, these 12 followers, became, became the largest religion in the world throughout all of history. Not just Jesus, but Jesus' followers, when when they were faced with opposition and terrible suffering, they kept going. How is that possible? Because of the power that was at work in their life. God living in their midst. God living in their hearts. The Holy Spirit. They knew that Jesus had died. But when they understood it, the penny dropped. And it changed their lives. Their hearts began to burn. It says at the end of a couple of the Gospels. You can be here this morning, friends, and you can know that Jesus died. But it can make no difference to your life. It can just be data to you. It can be remote. It can be existential truth. But something happened in the life of these disciples. So the fact they saw Jesus Christ die on the cross, it gave them new hearts. It gave them new hopes. It gave them new priorities. The penny began to drop in their lives after Jesus had died. They began to understand what Jesus Christ came to do. It's not enough just to know who Jesus is. You need to know why he died. Let's take a look at that. Verse 45 tells us that as well. Not just what he came to do. Secondarily, it also shows us why he came to die. Why did Jesus die? Verse 45 tells us he came as a ransom for many. You think of the word ransom, I guarantee, if you're a modern person, that means under 30, it means younger than me, you will think of Mel Gibson in in a recent film. I don't want you to think of Mel Gibson in the film Ransom. You might be thinking of, ah, that's a kind of a, a, a hostage situation where a ransom has to be paid. I want you to put that to one side as well. So ransom is not just a, a get out of jail free card or a, a, a penalty in a kidnapping situation. Verse 45, the specific word that's used in Greek is litron. And a guy who's studied this and has done uh, lots of historical research says, rather than a kidnapping or a hostage situation, put that to one side. What you need to think about is warfare. This is a warfare word. What do I mean? If you were in a battle with an opposing force, an opposing army, there were two ends to the battle if you lost. Number one, you would uh, die. In some bloody, gory manner, you would die. That's the first option if you lost the war. The second option would be you would be taken away. You would be taken away by an opposing force. You would face a horrendous future. You would probably be a servant. You might be used for manual labor in a construction project. It would be terrible, your future. It would be hopeless and hapless. The only way for you to get out of that is for a litron to happen for a ransomer to come and pay a huge amount of money to pay back the cost that you are worth. They would pay over the odds. They would not question. It's not a hand in your pocket kind of thing. They would have to make preparations. They'd have to sell stuff to pay your ransom price to get you back if you were a soldier. And if no one paid for you, 
to be ransomed, to be bought back. If nobody paid the price, you stay in servitude for the rest of your life. It would be an enormous ransom price. A bounty would be on your head for your freedom, not for your capture. And Jesus takes this word and says, that is what I've come to do. I've come to ransom you. I've come to ransom you. There are two truths to this. One is objective, one is subjective. One is a true truth, a a fact that is undeniable, that is something that happens on the outside. An objective truth is something that happens to you. But there's also a subjective element to the fact that Jesus came to ransom people. There's a power that happens in you when you understand it. There's an objective truth and there's a subjective truth. Let's think about each one. Why did Jesus Christ need to die for you, for me? Objectively, why? Why did God need Jesus to die? Why couldn't he just forgive? Why couldn't he just wipe the slate clean? I want you to imagine you've just parked your car at Gatwick Airport. I say that because a few of you have made the journey over from Ireland. You put it in the purple parking, in the long-stay parking, and somebody has gone to work on your car. There is a big man who you do not know, and he's got his hands on a baseball bat, and for whatever reason, he's singled out your car, and he's gone to work on it. You hear the alarm going off, but it's too late. By the time you get there, the man with the baseball bat is swinging the baseball bat at your car. The headlights are smashed. The windscreen has gone. Every single panel of your car has now got dents in it from the baseball bat, and he's not finished. He gets in the car, and just because he's had a really, really bad day, he lifts the uh, bonnet almost said hood, he lifts the bonnet of the car and he starts to go to work on the engine as well. Everything is smashed. The tyres are slashed. So immediately you ring the police. The policeman comes along and he puts his hand on the shoulder of the man who's gone to work on your car. Stick with me. Overcome by guilt, the man who's gone to work on your car immediately says, I don't know what came over me. I was having a really bad day and I just found this baseball bat. And I went to work on your car. I'm so sorry. Now, you might feel like getting that baseball bat and going to work on him, but you don't. And the policeman says, can you see how sorry he is? Why don't you just forgive him? I don't want to forgive him. That's my car. You're so vindictive. Why don't you just forgive him, says the policeman. Stick with me. But then imagine you look more closely at the number plate. And then you say, oh, it's not my car. It's my neighbor's car. My car's the one next to it. So you see, they're both blue. I'm really sorry. In fact, no damage has been done to mine. And the policeman is still saying, well, can you forgive him or not? There is a big problem when it comes to forgiveness. Forgiveness is a big deal. In that scenario, that man who's had a bad day and gone to work on your car or a car with a baseball bat, he can't just be forgiven. Forgiveness is a big problem. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay. Either he pays for the damage that he has caused, or somebody else pays. The insurance person pays. Your neighbour pays, whose car it really was. But somebody has to pay when it comes to forgiveness. Somebody has to absorb the cost. Forgiveness is a big problem. The second thing is, the policeman is saying to you, why don't you just forgive him? What's your problem? He's repentant. He said sorry. You're so vindictive. It would also be not just wiping away the cost. It would be unloving 
If you really love that person just to forgive him, it would be unloving for you to do that. It would be unloving for you just to forgive him. It would be unloving if you love society for you just to say, hey, it's not a big deal. The guy's just gone to work on your car. Clearly, he's not a model citizen. He might do it to other cars. Perhaps he's had a really bad day and needs some anger management. But here's the problem. Forgiveness is a big problem. Someone has to pay the cost. And if you love society for the good of order of society, you can't just forgive him. It's a huge problem, forgiveness. Why can't God just forgive us? It's a big problem. If you and I have struggles with forgiveness when someone takes something at work, when damage is done to something that belongs to us, when our child um, experiences hardship, you can't just forgive. If we find forgiveness hard, can you imagine how hard it is for God? Forgiveness is so hard for God that the only way for us to be ransomed is if Jesus pays the debt himself. Notice from verse 45, the word come is there. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word come is a big deal. If it was uh, the word go or the word went, it means something completely different. Jesus went to give his life as a ransom for many, as if God is kind of a capricious God and he needs to go and strong harm him to ransom us. But the fact it says that Jesus came, that means that this is not Jesus' idea, this is God's idea. This has been planned from eternity past, that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, would come and give his life as a ransom for many people. It's not just a, a light bulb moment like it is in Despicable Me. This has been planned throughout all of history, that Jesus Christ would come from heaven to earth to save people from earth to heaven. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many people. Think of it like this. Forgiveness is a big problem. What do I mean? A God who just forgives is not a holy God. They're not a pure God. A God who won't forgive, well, they're not a loving God. A God who can't forgive, well, then they're not a wise God. How do you satisfy love and justice? But friends, the claim of Christianity is this. Let me remind you. On the cross, you have both love and justice. On the cross, you have God, his holy love on display. You have absolute wisdom, a certainty of love. You have perfect uh, fulfillment of all these three characteristics on the cross. When Jesus Christ came and gave his life as a ransom for many people, he paid the debt. He took the cost. He satisfies the holy love of God. But then he does something else. He also, because he satisfies the holy love of God, the justice of God, he makes a new and living way possible. He makes a relationship with God possible that was never possible before. We've thought about the objective truth. Jesus Christ dies on the cross to satisfy the holy justice and love of God. But what about the subjective thing? If something happens to you, what about the thing that happens in you? What about the power of the cross that something happens in you? 
It says to give his life as a ransom for. The little word in, those, in that clause there, to give his life as a ransom for, is a little word anti in the original language. It means instead of, in the place of. It means that Jesus Christ just didn't pay the cost. He was there in place of you and in place of me too. In January 1992, there was an air crash in America. It was in Washington. It was a very, very cold day. There had been a terrible storm. And uh, Flight uh, 90, the Air Florida flight, hit a bridge. Perhaps there was ice on the tail wing or on the wings. And there was a terrible crash, and it plowed into the Potomac River. Most of the uh, plane broke up. And it was just the tail that was sticking out of the freezing cold water as the uh, rescue helicopter got near. Most of the people had already died, but Arland D. Williams was the most visible person. He was the most visible, he was the most accessible, and by all accounts, he was the most alert as well, Arland Williams. And so as the helicopter does, the rescue helicopter, they lay, uh, or let go and let down the, the life uh, support that goes around someone's armpits and they hoist up somebody. So they thought, we lower it down to Arland Williams and we're rescue. At least we rescue one person. So they lowered down the, the hoist from the helicopter and to their surprise, as they lowered it to Ireland, somebody else came up. He took the life support and gave it to somebody else and he rescued somebody. So they lowered it down again. The second time, Ireland, they thought, would come up, but somebody else came up. Ireland stayed in the waters and he's looking around for other people. He's going back into the tail of the airplane that's in the freezing cold waters and the third time as it went down to Ireland somebody else came up and then it happened a fourth time and this time when it went down to Ireland the hoist came up but with no one on it. Ireland had taken the life support and had given it to three other people and saved three other people. But when it went down a fourth time for Arlen D. Williams to save himself, he'd already perished in the freezing cold waters of the Pontomac River. He let three other people take his place. He gave his life for those other people, those strangers on a plane that he probably didn't even know. But time after time, three times, he went back into the tail of the plane that was just visible on the top of the water and he rescued three people. He took life in his hands and he gave life to other people. He died in their place. He could have saved himself, but he saved three other people. Why does that move me and move you? Substitutionary death, whether it be in a film that you watch, in a cartoon book that you see, in a, a play that you watch on the theatre stage, it is so moving to us. And Jesus in this verse says, all other religions give you information. They give you data. They give you a pathway to follow. They give you steps to adhere to. But Christianity gives you a story. It gives you a journey. It gives you a person. It doesn't tell you about love. It shows you what love is, and it's a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. When you begin to see this truth from verse 35, you are beginning to remind yourself, or even see for the first time, the very centre, the heartbeat of Christianity. What is Christianity all about? 
Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many people. When you see this, I mean, can you imagine those three people that Arlen D. Williams saved? How their life was always going to be shaped by that day, that plane crash, and that man's um, substitutionary acts on their behalf. It would have completely changed their lives. They'd be permanently indebted to this one man who could have saved himself, but saved them. Who gave his life for them. Friends, when you remind yourselves and when you see for the first time what Jesus Christ has done for you, it is so liberating and so empowering and powerful. You don't long, no longer do you live for money or career. It's just money and a career. You don't live for a relationship that you want and you long for. You can enjoy that, but it's just a relationship. You don't live for your pension pot because it's just a pension pot. You don't live with such a consummation about your appearance and worrying about what other people will think about you. Because the opinion of the only one that counts has changed you from the inside out. That's uh, what Jesus came to do and that's why he came to do it. To free your hearts, to free you before God. And that changes you on the outside and it changes you on the inside too. But finally, there's one lesson we need to learn from Calvin. How do you personally connect with Jesus? If you understand what he did, why he came to do it, how do you connect with him? Jesus says you need to go back to the beginning, Mark 10, 15. You need to become like Calvin. That's not what it says. It says you need to become like a little child. If you want to know who Jesus Christ is, you need to become like a little child. Now, what does that mean? Really quickly. This is a rich rich metaphor that we all as adults need to remind ourselves of. Children are absolute experts at receiving things because they have empty hands. They're really good on Christmas Day. They can get a bit grabby if they're like mine and like me too, but they're experts at receiving. The trouble is with adults, when you give a gift, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to give a gift back. You want to say, okay, where do I pay? How much can I give you? You've given me something. I want to give something back. But children don't do that. Children are experts at receiving. And Jesus says, if you want to know me personally, you need to learn a lesson from children, verse 15 of Mark 10. He's not saying, I've said it already, don't be spiritually childish, don't be immature, but be spiritually childlike. Be like a child. What are children like? Two things. Just ask Aileen, just ask Matthew, just ask any parent here. Children are always dependent. Alien will not be seeking to uh, reason with Calvin at three o'clock in the morning whether or not it's time for feed. Okay, she will just feed him. She will not be reasoning with him, and Matthew won't be reasoning with him when uh, it's one scoop or two. You just try and get as much food into your kids as you can, whether it's milk or solid food. Children are absolutely dependent on their parents. They have to uh, feel helpless. Well, they don't have to feel helpless because they are. But our problem as adults is that we forget our childlike stage and we think we're independent. We don't need any help. We can stand on our own two feet. That's part of growing up. But a real sign of maturity is when you are a mature person is when you recognise your own dependency. Think of Chris Froome in Team Sky, a bit controversial this week, but he is dependent on the rest of his team. Think of somebody who's struggling with cancer. They are dependent on those caring for them. Think of every single child. They are completely dependent on their parents for almost everything. From a house deposit 
to their first mouth of food. Being a Christian, Jesus says, knowing me personally, that means you need to put your pride to one side and you have to humbly come to me as a child comes to a parent. You need to say, I've got nothing to bring to you apart from my own broken record, my own filthy rags. I'm utterly dependent on you. Children never negotiate with the parent either. They don't come in and until teenage years when they start to haggle a little bit, but little children, they don't. They just say, I want food, or nah. They just make a noise. They say, feed me. They come in saying, mummy. They come in saying, daddy, help. That's what a cry means, and it means a hundred other things as well. They want the whole thing, they want it all, they need everything. Jesus is saying, if you want to know me personally, you need to recognize that children are great at showing dependency, and you need to be dependent upon me. The other thing is that children demand to be accepted. They demand to be accepted. You ask any four-year-old, five-year-old, when they come into a room, they don't say, oh, do you mind if I say something? They just start talking. They don't uh, sort of wait for a gap in the conversation. They just start yapping on. Children demand to be fed. They demand to be accepted. And they expect to be loved. It's just a rite of passage. Why don't you love me? What have I done wrong? I've said sorry and so on. They also expect every word they say to be interesting, which sometimes is a challenge as an adult. But you're glued to them, whether they're yabbering on or not. You want to hear your child speak. They expect to be accepted. Jesus is saying there are two roadblocks in the way to your relationship with me. You can have too high a view of yourself, or you can have too low a view of yourself. If you have too high a view of yourself, if you're a proud person here this morning, you won't become a Christian. Because you're not dependent like a child. You're too proud. You think you're too good. If you have too low a view of yourself, then you're not spiritually childlike. You don't recognise your dependency. You don't recognise that, that God in Jesus accepts you as you are. But listen carefully. The cross shows us undeniably that you and I are accepted at our worst. Jesus knows everything we've ever done. And he loves you. That's what the cross shows us. Uh, Imagine, uh, and this has never happened, so I can say it to you. Imagine at the end of a service, someone comes up to me and says, Nigel, you're the kindest person I've ever met. You're the most generous person I've ever met. You're the most loving person I've ever met. If anyone says that to me, it would be a lie. But just imagine someone said that to me. I would be on cloud nine for about ten minutes. If my wife said that to me, I would be on cloud nine for the week. If Joe came and said that to me, you're the most loving, kind, generous person I've ever met, I'd be on cloud nine for at least a week. Why? Because she knows me at my worst. She knows how selfish I can be. She knows how greedy I can be. She knows how snippy I can be with one another and with other people. If Joe says you're the most loving, kind person I've ever met, you're the most patient, it wouldn't be truthful, but if she said it, It would be so powerful and changing because she knows me at my worst. Friends, on the cross, Jesus laid down his life. He came for this purpose, to give his life for me and for you. And on the cross, Jesus says, I will die for you and I've seen you at your worst. And look what you've done to me. Our sins held Jesus to the cross. And yet at the same time, Jesus can say to us, 
I love you at your worst, but look how much you mean to me. I'm not in a river drowning. I'm dying on a cross. The creator of the whole world who knows what you've done. And he says, I know what you've done, but look how valuable you are to me. And I'm the only one who counts. Friends, Jack Nicholas went to his golf coach once a year. If you're here and you're new to Christian things, I'd love to uh, speak to you if I can be of any help to you. But this is the one thing you need, whether you've been a Christian for many, many years, or if you're not yet a Christian, you need to see why Jesus came to earth. You need to see the meaning of ransom. You need to see the great cost that was paid for your sake and for your great need. And to the degree you understand that verse, verse 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many people. To the degree you understand that is the degree that you'll be changed in your heart. Let's pray together. Father, this sentence is just like a boiled sweet. We could go on thinking about what it means for us just ages and ages. We can meditate on it. We can think about it. We can pray over it. We can read other books about it. But we thank you that as much as we consider it, it's true that you, Jesus, came and died on a cross to pay the price for the damage that we've done by not wanting to live under your loving rule and care. But thank you that there is a living, personal relationship with you, our Father God, that is possible now because of the cross of Christ, because of what Jesus did. Thank you for the great lengths that you went to to rescue and redeem and ransom us. And please, help us to be like Calvin. Help us to be dependent, to realise that we are accepted by you because of Jesus. Help us, please, to come to you by faith, I pray, even today. Amen.